It's episode 58 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Helen Joy. She's a user experience consultant at the digital agency Spark, where she focuses on universal and inclusive design practices. We're going to discuss what those practices mean in the day-to-day work we do as designers and how hard it can be to see through our digital privilege. Helen, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it, this is great. This is uh, this is the kind of stuff I've been wanting to talk about for quite a b- while, we, and we do that all the time on the uh, on the program here. Uh, the the more of the like the the ethical and and motivation motivational choices that we make in our design. But but before we get to that, I wanted to ask you uh, about Nottingham. Is that where you are right now? It is. Yes. Yeah. It's where I live and work. And uh, yeah, so recently uh, I spoke at New Adventures Conference, which was here in Nottingham. And uh, it's an amazing city for technology. We've got loads and loads of meetups that we do. I am also an organizer of Women in Tech Nottingham. Uh, so I'm part of part of the tech scene here as well. And we've got a really good community of, of tech practitioners going on here i'm going to ask you more about that women in tech thing in a little bit um sure. I, I went to the conference i thought it was great you did a wonderful job um, thank you yeah for sure uh it was a really good conference uh jerry cody and simon collison put that on a couple of people that i've known for a, a little while in the industry do it they're they're always up to interesting stuff and when i was i was uh, the night before i was going to leave uh to take the train up from london I told my kids, uh, hey, I'm going to Nottingham. And they're like, Robin Hood? <laughs> so I'm sorry. I, I get the same kind of cliched response when I, I tell people I'm from, I, I was from San Francisco. But, but they had a question for me, which is, you know, was Robin Hood a real person? And I was like, of course I know the answer to that. Let's, but you should go look at Wikipedia. <laughs> and it turns out, sure enough, right? Like, that's the whole thing. And there's this huge Wikipedia page that they read, which made me really happy. But um, but that's kind of the, well, I wouldn't say claim to fame, notoriety maybe, of uh, partially of Nottingham. Nottingham. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, Sheriff of Nottingham and all of that uh, wonderful legend stuff. Yeah, for sure. I found uh, just a wonderful, like I had one of the best Vietnamese uh, meals of my life uh, while we were up there. There's there's a lot going on up there. There is, yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. I uh, uh, Coffee as well. So, yes. Um, amazing independent coffees some of which were at new adventures and uh conveniently about two minutes away from where i live so uh who are those roasters that were there that's uh outpost coffee yeah yeah they're really really good yeah i went over there this morning (laughs) i went over there shop uh the next day after the conference and and uh had a big chat with them uh they were doing great stuff oh my gosh that was good coffee they know their coffee they sure do uh (laughs) Good. So, hey, let's talk about what you were talking about. Uh, like I said at the beginning, this is stuff that I think about all of the time uh, and and talk to uh, the designers that I work with about uh, frequently, which is this, this notion of design as a set of decisions and prioritizations, which I love to frame things that way. Because it takes it out of the more of the nuts and bolts of like, you know, what apps are we using and what interface widgets and and like, what can I do on my touch app that's going to be cool and get rid of all of that and say like, look, every single piece of work you do around creating a digital experience for somebody is a decision that has a set of prioritizations. Like, what are we going to show here? What are we going to put lower down? And and perhaps more importantly, what are we going to leave out? And, uh, And the consequences of those decisions are that when we leave things out... Or when we make a decision to prioritize something over another thing, we often leave people out of that, of their ability to be able to uh, use 
what we're designing uh, or engage with it fully. And I think that kind of captures where you were starting from, at least in your in your uh, presentation. Yeah. Um, interestingly, actually, I saw a tweet the other day, which was um, I haven't yet responded to, but it said design's really easy and um, uh, designers can make 99% of the decisions for a UI and it will just work. And I read that and thought, no, that's not true. Um, I think that design is actually much more complex than that. And we have to be really mindful of who we're designing for. And I, I've come from a bit of a, a journey within design. So I've been doing UX for several years now. But as I um, introduced in the, at the start of the talk, I had a position of being the lone UX designer. Uh, so I would be the advocate for uh, the user experience. But due to budgets and situations, I wasn't able to actually access the people that I was designing for. Oh, I think that's hugely, hugely common, right? The, the yes. idea that uh, the, the more data and experience we can observe for what's going into our design, the better. But the, the cost and time is, hard, uh, is seldom prioritized, especially in companies where uh, design is not prioritized, where user experience is not prioritized, or understood is probably even a better word. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think in, in that situation, then you, you work with what you have. So you can, um, you can adhere to best practices, you can make design decisions based on common sense. And that's, that's a really good starting point. But I realized when I changed roles, and I joined Spark, which is where I am now, and sort of switched the focus from design to research, I got to see over the fence. And when that happened, suddenly you start to understand how people are actually using the things that we design. And they use things in really strange and wonderful ways mm. that you are not anticipating them doing when you start to go out and, and speak to people, you can understand that actually the things that you think as a designer are a really logical decision don't necessarily translate downwards to the people that you're actually designing for. If you even, I think, if you even have a notion of what the full scope of the people that you're designing for and yes. all of the criteria that uh, helps you kind of categorize uh, those those people. I guess for lack, I, mean, I don't know, I don't know, I don't really like that phrasing that I just used. But but you know what I mean, right? Like, what is their level of experience? What is their their cultural touch points that help them understand the metaphors we're using in the design? You know, uh, what what are their physical abilities that help us understand whether they can even differentiate between the colors or see the screen for that matter? All of those criteria for helping people be successful with a product, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, one of the, the things that I've been exposed to since, um, so I'm working with government, so I'm working into the GDS, um, Government Digital Services mm, yep. stream. And one of the concepts that I have been introduced to is the digital inclusion scale. So this is a way of identifying how digitally skilled the people that we're designing for is and we can see when we start to look at this as a scale that anyone who is producing 
digital design or technology are completely at the top of the scale and we're experts in our field. We understand exactly what we're doing and the designs that we're putting out. But when you start to actually go out and speak to people and understand where they are on the scale, a lot of the time, especially if you're dealing with members of the public, they're much, much, much further down the scale. And the problem that I've identified since seeing this is that it's very hard to unknow what you know. Mm. So for designers who are experts in using digital products or using digital services, it's very hard to step away from your own mindset of, well, it would be really obvious for me to click this button and then go here and therefore I'll prioritize the hierarchy of the design based on how I know how to use technology. Mm-hmm. But when you start to actually look beyond the bounds of of where we sit within our sphere of technology, what's very obvious to us isn't necessarily very obvious to other people. The uh, There's this notion in design of uns- unseeing and how it's kind of impossible to unsee something, right? So when you're mm. crafting a design, and you're especially like in visual or interface design, and you're, you're putting the elements on the screen and you're arranging them in order, and, and after a while, it becomes so so deeply ingrained in your consciousness that you can't experience anymore. You can't imagine what it might be like for somebody on their first view of this and whether it's going to resonate or not. Right. And that, and you know, and that's always been a struggle for uh, kind of any creative pursuit is how are people going to approach this on their first impression? Now that I've been looking at this thing for 80 hours. Right. And I think that's a little bit what you're talking about here with this, with, with this idea of like, I have been using technology my entire life. What is it going to be like for somebody here who is on a different place in the scale? Exactly. Exactly. And I think it is that you can't, you can't unsee and the issue that I I found with that is previously when I was basically being the representative user, I was still bringing all of my knowledge to the table. And it's only when you can actually get in front of the pe- the real people that you're designing for, suddenly they look at things in a very, very different way from the way that we look at things. Right, right. Let's put a little color on this uh, because the, this digital inclusion scale that's published by the, the uh, UK government uh, is it's essentially an infographic that you can use to sort of plot out where do where do we think based on our research our users will fall right and it's got sort of nine categories nine being expert eight being confident seven being basic digital skills and it goes all the way down to people who are like willing but unable or or just like have never been online, have never used technology and never will. Right. And that's a incredibly broad range of skills that people might have. But like, as I've got it here on my screen right now, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So people listening can sort of click through and, and have a look at this. Um, imagine sort of putting dots on, on the, on this, this scale based on like, all right, this is our intended audience. This is what we know about our audience. Um, Wow, that, that you know they're very different from the people who are literally producing the the output. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, some of the feedback that I got actually out of demoing that in the talk was that uh, I used an example of someone that I'd met uh, who was uh, when he he spoke to me about how he used technology. He was very unconfident. Uh, he told me that he thought that he was probably the worst person using out a service, but yet he could use internet banking he could use email he had a smartphone 
So when we plot him on the scale, he's actually around kind of six and a half. And the feedback that I got from some of the attendees was like, wow, if he's that unconfident, but he's actually, he's not that many steps from us. What Mm. do other people look like? Right, right. Um, And that is like, he had sort of task specific understandings, like could could follow process uh, to be able to do things, um, but, but without the broader basic digital skills to be able to apply those ta- uh, apply those uh, learnings to other tasks. Is that sort of how yeah. you might characterize it? Yeah. So Yeah, very much guided. So he can use the service that I work on perfectly well, um, but he had to be shown it. So he's, it's that task-specific way of learning. So somebody has shown him how to do a thing, and then he can do it. The, the way that I think of this and describe it is he's not an explorer i think that the the full digital skilled people are more exploratory in the way that they'll use a product or a service they'll just click around to see what happens Mm. and i I think a lot of designers would be like that so it's like oh land on a thing see what happens investigate Mm -hmm. be curious about it Mm -hmm. but other people don't have the confidence to be curious they just want to be shown step by step this is how I use this specific thing. And they don't go beyond the basic need that they have for interacting with something. Well, and there's this very basic human fear that uh, if I, if I do the wrong thing, it'll break and I will break it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of his quotes that he told me was that if there was anything that he needed to do that he deemed to be a little bit complex he wanted to do that at home where his girlfriend and his daughter were yeah. and the quote was to help him uh, to help guide him if he went wrong mm-hmm. so this is another thing that um actually the microsoft inclusive design manual are really good at identifying mm-hmm. which is that a lot of the time we tend to think of our singular user so whatever product or service we're working on there's one person at the end who is using whatever we're working on but there's actually this concept of it being or not a concept a reality of it being a wider thing and there isn't necessarily one person there might be someone and someone who is helping them and assisting them and guiding them so there's not necessarily a user using this. It might be a user and their daughter or a user and their colleague or a user and their friends. Mm. And it being this wider spectrum of, of people. And that's something that, again, until I started really getting into inclusive design, is just not something that would have even occurred to me. It's just tremendous amount of context that uh, feels so elusive uh, so often in our in our product development. Okay, I have more questions about that for sure. But first, I want to take a little break and tell you uh, about one of our sponsors, and that is our friends at Abstract. Uh, Abstract is design workflow management software for modern design teams. So more and more tech companies are realizing every day that design is a competitive advantage, and they're also finding that the workflows and tools that they use are just not up to scratch. So if you're a designer, you'll know how frustrating this is. You search and you export files from one tool to another, especially when you're consolidating feedback from multiple sources and never being totally sure what changes have been made and what are approved and where's the feedback. That's where Abstract comes in. 
Our friend Josh Brewer, who was on the program a few months ago, uh, was formerly the principal designer at Twitter. He's the founder, and his goal in this uh, product was to sort of develop the GitHub for designers. That's uh, kind of think of abstract as your team's version-controlled source of truth for all the design work that they're doing. It brings design workflow into a single unified place so that designers and developers and stakeholders can all collaborate and keep the work moving forward. Uh, in the last two years, Abstract has already gotten 100,000 users, uh, and they are spending less time searching for files and tracking down feedback and more time focused on innovation and collaboration. These are companies like Zappos and MailChimp and they're and Intuit, and they're all relying on Abstract to improve their design workflows and collaboration. Here's the things you can do with Abstract. You can design, uh, you can take your design files and version them. You can present the work. You can request reviews for the work. You can give feedback on the work. Uh, and you can give developers direct access to all the specs they need to make the work. And that's all from one place. So sign up your, your team for a free 30-day trial today by heading over to goabstract.com. That's goabstract.com. And this is pretty cool. If you, do, if you send out a tweet uh, and, and tag at uh, goabstract and at presentablefm, just use the phrase, improve my design workflow. Uh, and they're going to pick one of those tweets and give you $500 credit for the business plan. You get your whole team set up for a while. Uh, that abstract, uh, that URL, one more time, is goabstract.com. It's a free 30-day trial. Go try it out. It's amazing. Uh, so my thanks to Josh and the team over at Abstract for supporting this show and for supporting all of Relay FM. So, Helen, one of the things that, frankly, frustrates me so much is that when we make design decisions that uh, do not account for the broad for broad range of skills that people have with digital technology, we end up putting those people in a situation where they feel like it's their fault. Like we were talking before the break, where the 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 person you were talking to who wanted to do who wanted to like you know do the task you were asking him to do back home with his with his wife and daughter who are more savvy than him, he he would feel like. The problem with this, the, the reason I can't get this done is because I'm no good at technology. I'm making mistakes. I'm going to break it, right? It's turning it around on themselves and, and creating, frankly, a, a sense of shame that people have around this stuff. When in reality, it is the problem of the system based on the decisions made by designers or engineer or anybody, frankly, on the team to not think about this as inclusively as they can. Is that, does that resonate with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um he would say it much more succinctly than me, but that's definitely a theme that's in the design of everyday things as well. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, when, yeah, when, when things don't work as people expect, for whatever reason, when it's technology, people have this tendency to just blame themselves. And then there's this whole, I, I mean, I saw it recently. I think it was one of my colleagues had posted to the wrong Slack channel because they were on their mobile interface and they got confused. Uh, and this is someone who's a UX consultant, but still said, oh, user error, uh, that they, mm. they had done this wrong. But again, it's like, well, actually, it was clearly <laughs> not obvious to them which channel they were in. And that's an interface issue, not a user issue. Right. But people do have this tendency, even when we're nine on the digital scale, to blame ourselves when technology doesn't work in the way that we expect. Let's look at the other side of this for a minute. And the arguments that I have heard kind of my whole career around, uh, around this kind of stuff from people who I think do have a, a significantly high 
sort of digital privilege, and we'll talk about that term in a little bit too. But there, there obviously is room for expert systems, right? Like uh, we ha- in in my career, we have done research uh, in figuring out the, the 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 overall mental model and usability for an interface on an MRI machine, mm. as an example. Um, these are interfaces where there is an expectation of competency in the field and training on the interface. Uh, and our job was to understand as best we could that level of competency and how that might translate into a system where we could absolutely and fundamentally reduce errors, right? Um, and so if you have that on one end as, a, uh, as, a, as some context I feel like those sorts of things often get used as examples of like, well, we shouldn't just go for the absolute lowest common denominator. I mean, we got to try to move the industry forward. We got to try to move things and try to be innovative and stuff like that. And and there feels like that's where a lot of the tension in these conversations come from. I wonder how you kind of how you respond to that. Yeah, I th- I think it's a really difficult thing. Um, it's, it's something that I've been working on and um, struggling with to a degree of. Within the service that I work on, we we have this massively broad spectrum of people. So uh, because it's an industry that people stay in quite late into, uh, they don't necessarily retire from. So some of the people that use our service are uh, in their early 70s, late 60s. But then we have apprentices. So we also have 16-year-olds coming into the industry as well so we've got pretty much as wide a spectrum of of ages and and skill sets within that and when we go and we speak to some of the people who have been on the service a very long time we get please stop changing it like we just learned the new thing and now you're changing it and this is really painful for us and every time that you do an update that's that's a big shift we have to learn it again. So it's gone through a few different, um, basically it's mechanics as an industry and they used to just be pen and paper. And then a computerized system was brought in and then that was massively overhauled with GDS a few years ago. And then we're making continuous improvements to that. So for them, they've gone through this, well, I used to just have a piece of paper and that was so easy. And now I've had to learn this, this computerized system but then we've got the new people coming in saying, well, this this doesn't really make sense for some of the bits that are a bit legacy. Mm. So it's a really difficult thing because you don't want to isolate the people who have been using things for a very long time. But equally, you bring in new people who have to adapt to a design that doesn't necessarily work very well and then go, oh, that's the way it works, I suppose. And you want to shift that change to make it better for the newer people coming in as well, really. But it's a really difficult balance. So it's interesting. So you're sort of saying it goes both ways in that there are people who are, uh, I think the categorization is generally digital native. That is, they grew up not ever experiencing a world without digital technologies. I have, I have kids that have never lived in a world without touchscreens, for example, right? Yeah. So they have a whole set of a whole set of experiences, a whole set of assumptions, frankly, about how technology should work that such that if they experience an interface that is designed for people with a, uh, a different digital literacy, that might be perplexing to them. 
Yes. Yeah. And it, and it makes it very difficult. Um, I, I was having a conversation with my colleagues the other day and the way that we see, or the only way that we can see the services that we work on really starting to work for everyone who's using them is to introduce much more personalization. And I think that that's a topic that mm. I've heard being kicked around a little bit over the last few years in uh, it was sort of from digital marketing initially, but trying to bring more personalization into design and saying that actually it's just completely unlikely that whatever we design is a one size fits all because the spectrum is so massive of, of different people using it. I'd be interested to see, and this is not an area I particularly know about, but where we go from there and, and whether it is possible to start to allow more flexibility within design so that people can tailor it to them rather than having to learn what we pitch to them. See, and that's really interesting because one of the things uh, that I have heard you talking about is this idea that the skills that people have when applied to using digital technology can be uh, not just permanent, but temporary or situational. That is, like my inability to use an interface may have, uh, if, like, like if I can't see the screen, it's because I am, you know, I, I could have been uh, born without sight, but I also could just be experiencing cataracts and be post-surgery right now, uh, or I literally just can't get to the screen at this moment and see it, right? But I can, you know, hear the audio there, right? Or, and there's many other ones, right? I might not be able, I might be born nonverbal, but I could have laryngitis or I could just have a really, I could be in a, diff, a foreign country and have a heavy accent and am not understood. So that gives us a sense of like, you know what? These are not categories of people, but these are skills that come and go at different times, right? Like my ability to understand an interface may have to, may, you know, I might be very, very digitally native and, and high on the scale, but super tired right now because I've been working all night and I'm just like not getting it and having trouble and can't fill out the form. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I and I did pull this in as some examples. So uh, again, this is from the Microsoft Inclusion uh, digital inclusion resources and they call it the persona spectrum this is I think a really important thing to be thinking about uh, because if we're looking at inclusion a lot of the time the argument falls to accessibility and accessibility is super important but I think that designers and uh, developers get a bit hung up on accessibility being disability and it being purely about uh, access for disabled people. Mm -hmm. But when you start to look at this as this spectrum, it starts to allow a lot more empathy within designs and uh, the examples that they pull out. Uh, so the verbal one, for example, if you're using a voice interface, and yeah, as you said, if you've got an, an accent that is not being picked up, suddenly you're not able to use that thing and you're not, you, you're not suffering from a disability, but the context in which you're trying to interact with something isn't, isn't working for you. You know, I'd like to see these as posters everywhere within, within design companies as well, because these scenarios, when you look at them, you can place yourself in them. And I think when you can see yourself as one of the representatives in this, 
it, by nature, it changes your attitude towards inclusivity. There's this absolutely hilarious video where these two Scottish comedians are doing a skit in which they're in a voice-activated elevator trying to get to the 11th floor. And everybody else who comes in, and it, it understands them perfectly, but with their thick Scottish accents, it doesn't work. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well. <laughs> but it's, and it's something that uh, I found really funny, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, look at that, right? Like, you know, yeah. the simple fact of like everybody has different uh, accents puts them in uh, a category that we would call accessibility. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and that's where it needs to be the wider thing. And it's about inclusivity. And it's about designing for diversity as well. Obviously, well, not obviously, but within the design industry, we do have a, a certain category of privilege. Uh, there are a lot of designers who are quite middle class and usually white and have a reasonable amount of um, societal and digital privilege. So if you're, yeah, if you're designing and you're not thinking about things like other people having accents or other people's um, literacy levels or digital skill sets, then we're going to struggle to make design that, that works for a wider audience. In my own experience, I was probably eight years old when, and it's a long time ago, Helen, I'm very old. Uh, <laughs> but I was eight years old when I saw a video game for the first time. And I, I can still even distinctly remember this. It was a, uh, one of those tabletop, like they called them cocktail video games, like, cause they would put them in bars and, and we were at some restaurant and, uh, and I remember seeing this, this, this table that had a, a television underneath it pointing up and I went and looked at it and it was one of those first pong games where, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah um, where you sat down and you'd like put your drink on the, t on the table and the game was in the table and you had the controls by your knees. And I was like, and, and I remember it just being like, Oh my God, this, you can control what's on the TV screen. But crucially what happened in that moment was my parents like gave me a stack of quarters Right, like yeah, go try it out. Play, you know, and my brother and I we played and and everything, and we loved it so much that like my parents bought us one, and we had one at home. And and I just I use that example as my introduction to technology was uh, accompanied with unfettered access to it. That mm. like I showed an interest, and my parents, my family was in an economic position where I could express that interest, and that to me, is like the core of this idea of digital privilege, which is this, this notion that like, I, nothing, I, I had very little input in this. I had very little agency in, the, in my ability to, to be able to become essentially digitally native you know, uh, uh, very early on in this, this notion of the digital experiences that we have. And I had them from the beginning. And when I outgrew the Pong, I got an Atari. And when I outgrew that, I got a Commodore 64. And then I could start to, you know, like write basic programs. And, and, and I was, you know, I had an affinity for it. I had other friends that had equal access that didn't have the affinity. But at the same time, it never occurred to me that if that, that, you know, I wanted to, that I, that I could not basically fulfill this obsession I had with technology because it was because I had access. And it is very hard, you know, when we do our work, and I remember this in my 20s and 30s, when I was doing that work, to try to take myself out of that, like, that situation 
Or what would it have been like if I just never, like if I had seen that video game and couldn't play it and never got one and didn't get the computer and never had it at school and maybe had all of the same sort of cognitive abilities that I have now, but no opportunity. And so that feels like, to me, the core of this inclusive design, which is understand that the pathway to you making this experience for somebody else was full of privilege you had no control over and you have to acknowledge that that there are huge chunks of the population that don't have that absolutely absolutely and i think that's that's the thing when we have digital privilege is actually understanding that we have it and i think a lot of it when we are in these environments everything is second nature to us so, of course, we have a smartphone and, of course, we have up-to-date computers and up-to-date software and latest browsers and uh, and we're not running, like, IE7 or whatever. Um, but actually, when you start to step outside of the bounds of the industry that we work in, you start to see what other people's technology looks like and other people's skill sets. So if we're in our nice design studios and we've got our like 5K 27-inch IMAX, it's very unlikely that the mass uh, amount of people who are using whatever we're designing are also on those screens. And um, I've found since uh, doing the research with my demographic that the technology that they have is quite a lot of the time quite old in comparison to the technology that we have in our design offices mm. and design studios and they're not running the latest versions of things necessarily and that's that's been really interesting my favorite example which i put in my talk was a, a garage that i went to visit and they have a pc in a shed which is their office within the garage and it's so far removed from uh, the tech setup that we have in our offices that it actually the first time I saw that I was quite taken aback mm. that it, that was how they approached their technology but to them that's just what their tech looks like and they don't see our shiny retina laptops and, and that kind of thing right that's their normal and they're doing this in a noisy environment and they're standing up and they have dirty hands and like, it's just not right. Like it's just yeah. a very, very different context for using an interface. It is entirely. Um, one of them told me that they thought that on, on the subject of, of blaming themselves rather than the technology, they told me that they thought that uh, everything had gone down and they couldn't log in and something uh, they were doing something wrong. And it turned out that, um, someone else had, in a fit of rage, thrown something at the keyboard and broken one of the keys and uh, had, had switched numlocks on. <laughs> and, they, they, and then they couldn't log into the system and they couldn't work out why they couldn't log into the system. And it turned out that that was actually a hardware problem. Literally, they, literally <laughs> a spanner in the works. Somebody, yeah, somebody smashed the keyboard with a wrench. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but they were really struggling... They, they laughed about it when they told me, but they they really struggled to resolve it because it didn't occur to them to investigate 
around the hardware. They just didn't know why the system wasn't working. Oh my god! And I think again, like, yeah. I think the world would be a phenomenally better place with if every keyboard simply just eliminated the caps lock key. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, hold on to that thought. I want to ask you more about that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about one of our sponsors, uh, and that is our friends at ExpressVPN. Uh, look, if you're reading anything in the media now, you're seeing lots about online security breaches. Uh, your data has been compromised here, and here's another big breach, and all the passwords are gone. So it's only natural to worry about where your data goes, especially when something as simple as sending an email can put your private information at risk. And chances are you're being tracked by all the social media sites and marketing companies and even probably your internet provider. They can see uh, not only your browsing history, but they can also sell it to people who profit from your info. Honestly, this is not, again, like crazy conspiracy theory theory stuff. This is actually, uh, you know, uh, tech CEOs being called in front of Congress to say like, where's this data going? So, uh, you can take some steps to take back your privacy and you can do that using express VPN. Express VPN works by securing and anonymizing all of your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address. Uh, you can turn on express P VPN, uh, literally with just one click. The, it's easy to use app it runs seamlessly in the background. Uh, you can use it on your computer, your computer, your phone, your tablet. Uh, it costs only seven dollars a month. Uh, ExpressVPN is the number one VPN service uh, rated by Tech Radar, and comes with a thirty back thirty day money back guarantee. Yeah, just try it out, see if you like it. If you don't like it, turn it off. But honestly, there's there's so much to like. Uh, if you ever use public Wi-Fi, you want to keep the bad guys away from your data. You need to use ExpressVPN. I use it all the time on my laptop, my phone, uh, and my iPad. Uh, there's a cafe that I go to by my house uh, that has literally no signal in it. So even if I want to use my phone while I'm having my coffee, I got to log on to their terrible Wi-Fi. There's a hundred other people on that Wi-Fi. I have no idea what they're looking at or if they're looking at the packets that are going through. So I put on the ExpressVPN. It is literally like I launch the app. I hit the big button. There's one big button. It even chooses the the highest performance VPN endpoint that is like, you know, because they've got, the, you can use it in, you can direct your traffic to any country and um, and it'll it'll pick the fastest one or you can choose whatever you want. I use it all the time. It gives me a ton of peace of mind. I just know that nothing nefarious is happening with the passwords that are being sent over the Wi-Fi while I'm logging into various sites and things like that. You should do the same thing. Protect your own online activity today. Go to expressvpn.com slash presentable. That's expressvpn.com slash presentable. If you don't want your online history in the hands of your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. Uh, if you go to that URL, that expressvpn.com slash presentable, you can get three months free with a one-year package. So if you pay for a year up front, and again, with a 30-day money-back guarantee, uh, three extra months, I'll tack it on at the end. Expressvpn.com slash presentable, three months free. Thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right, so we were talking about people not having the same level of technology that we do when we design the experiences for them. Uh, I, have, I have been looking at this quite closely because the company that I work for did an investment recently here in London for a company called WeFarm. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they do a, a sort of a question-and-answer network for farmers in rural Africa using SMS only. Uh, because of the penetration of technology is deeply uh, uh, unequal and uh, poorly distributed uh, in in countries like Uganda and Kenya and, and 
and whatnot. So farmers can, on their SMS, send a free text asking a question like, why are my chickens dying? And, um, and they kind of like, they sent, they, they process that. They figure out who might be the best people to answer that, send out texts to those people as well. And, um, and it is, it's growing like crazy and it's, and it's phenomenal the impact that it's having. What, what is fascinating to me as well is the process that, by which the, the product team over there has to figure out like, oh my God, what, talk about technological constraint and trying to understand those constraints. Uh, through the kind of the privilege of the technology that we have every day, remarkable. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds fascinating, and I think as well, it's that's really interesting that it's SMS, right? And again, like I think within our digital privilege bubble, that's a harder thing for us to even kind of contemplate because it's like, well, why would it not be on the internet? Um, because there isn't any. So, yeah, because right. we're so used to 4G, we're so used to like what a myriad of messaging apps. And I think that actually it's really interesting when you talk about constraints because I think that's such a good recipe for good design is having limitations, understanding those limitations, and then actually coming up with much more innovative solutions that work for people because of constraint. And I think that sometimes if we have, if we're looking at digital privilege, we're looking at designers working within um, their filter bubbles, essentially of up-to-date software, 4, 5G, broadband, super fast connections, anything's possible, then we, sometimes we can design these things that on the face of it are like super amazing and effective and innovative, but actually aren't accessible to other people. And I think that sometimes that the stronger innovation lies within that a much more constrained situation that, that you're designing for. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So, so what are we going to do about this? There is this notion that thinking about these things is not just a good thing to do, but that it is absolutely our collective responsibility as designers. That it that access to digital technology is kind of required for participation in society. And if that's the case, then everything we build has to be accessible to everybody in our society. So, so how do we do this? Right. This gets back to the thing we talk about on this program all the time, which is the ethics of of design. And uh, and you, uh, you sort of promoted a few resources. I've been looking at this ethical OS, which uh, ethical OS toolkit, um, which I think is fascinating. Uh, it's a guide to anticipating the future impact of today's technology. Um, and I like this subhead, which says, "How do we not regret the things we build?" Absolutely, right? <laughs> yes. That is in such stark contrast to Silicon Valley's ethos of move fast and break things. Uh, I still. Kind of, maybe this generational, I don't know, but I still hold on to both, right? That the idea that we should look at the established power structures of the world and find out ways if we can kind of redistribute that power using in a more democratic way. And I think going fast and breaking things is a way to do that. But at the same time, how do we not regret like the decisions we're making today, especially when we're put in a position where we have no very, where we feel like we have very little choice? Yeah, and I think it's I, I I equally I love the strap line of of how to not regret what you build, and I think that uh, yeah I would I'd highly recommend having a look through the toolkit because 
on the face of it is very simple and it's uh, a series of questions that you would ask yourself before you build anything mm. and before you put it into the world and the thing that's really important to me about the the way that this toolkit's been put together and been presented is that it is it's not just questions for one discipline it's not just well, it's the designer's responsibility to answer these questions or it's the product owner's responsibility. It makes it very clear within the resources that all of the questions that need to be considered before things are made are interdisciplinary and you get everyone in the room at the same time. So you've got designers, engineers, developers, business analysts, product owners, stakeholders, everyone coming together to have essentially an informed conversation and I think this is the thing that I've seen within the industry is that sometimes different disciplines are taking things upon themselves so I've seen organizations where accessibility has been pushed by the UXs but equally I've seen organizations where accessibility has been pushed by the front-end developers so Sometimes we get the sort of different disciplines advocating things, but I see a division within that sometimes, and we don't have this fully cohesive team no. all pushing for accessibility. And if that was the case, then we would we would have way more accessible products. But it seems to be sometimes we get things falling to different disciplines and it not being a collective input. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very difficult from a bottom-up perspective. The, the, the idea of like the people uh, who are actually writing the code or designing the screens, having, an, having enough sort of collective power to be able to say to the organization that they work for, the people who run the organizations that they work for, hey, this isn't, we, get, we need the time, we need to be able to do this. We need the resources to be able to make sure our, our offerings are inclusive. And I think there's a lot of frustration in the industry around that. I mean, we see things like the the way decisions are being made about the uses of technologies really affecting, you know, like Google having so many people, so many Google employees walk out mm. uh, of their of their jobs and you know, do this sort of protest uh, and organizing a protest of such a scale uh, because of the decisions uh, around you know their technology in China and selling their um, selling the tech to the you know defense industry and you know things like that I, I wonder if that's if there's some kind of upswelling of that happening around the people who make the digital products around the inequality that's built into these products yeah i think that is the thing with with any of these things like the toolkits if if you're not getting the stakeholders involved there can be this division and contention between uh, business essentially and and the and product yeah, and we end up and we end up with with pitch pitchforks at the all hands meeting, you know, like yeah. there's the angry mob. We demand change, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely for sure. And and that's happening at some level, right? Like uh, f uh, forms of protest, or at least you know the very first stages of those in the forms of manifestos, like the the Copenhagen letter and things like that, right? Yes, yeah, and that's another resource that I think is a really wonderful thing. Um, so. Uh, I was shown that by one of my colleagues when we started talking about ethics. And it's wonderful to see so many people from around the world signing up to 
having a code that they uh, believe in and follow. And I think this is the thing with the web industry or the digital design industry. It's it's not really regulated. Anyone can come in and, and make things and put them on the internet. We don't have the same um, levels of sort of organization as, as other more established industries. Anyone can be a web designer. Anyone can make things that other people are going to use. So it seems that things like the Copenhagen letter, and there are other, other codes as well that are around, is a way to identify that actually we should regulate ourselves. But I think within our industry, it's up to us to do that. We have to be a sort of self-regulating body as it is at the moment. And it's really important to be able to identify the privilege that we have and take some moral and ethical responsibility for what we produce. Yeah, uh, though I would say that change is already happening, right? Like anybody can become a web designer and launch digital products. Sure, it's the, the, the barrier to entry is very low. But let's say you collect information about people while you're doing that. Well, now you're subjected to the GDPR regulations here in Europe, at least. That's right? true. So, yes. you know, like, well, you should have not done all those things you did with all that data and users' privacy. So we're going to create laws to make sure you don't. It's one of the... One of the differences, at least for the time being, between sort of Europe and the United States. In the U.S., right, the government pulls all the execs in. They do these big public hearings and they say, like, hey, clean this up or it's coming. Um, Europe, it tends to just kind of – it happens a little more uh, more quickly, it seems. It's just like, yep, here's a new law. Sorry, got to do it. Um, yes. <laughs> that's a gross generalization. But it is a sense of, like, it's going to happen in the U.S. as well uh, if – change doesn't happen. I mean, you could just see the groundswell in the media all the time, especially around privacy. But I think, you know, what you're talking about around inclusion and things like that are, are coming uh, as well. There's just a, a lot of sense that people don't feel empowered by the technology in the way that we imagine they would. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think as well, like the industry is, is growing up. Definitely. Um, I, I reflected on this a little bit a couple of weeks ago after New Adventures because when I started getting into uh, digital design, I came from print. Uh, so maybe a decade ago or so, mm -hmm. it was all about like, what can we do online? So it was like, oh, like, oh, we've got web fonts now. This is amazing. And we've got columns and we can do layouts and uh, look at all of this cool stuff that we can do with technology. Mm. Web fonts and are pretty cool. I agree. Fonts are cool <laughs> <laughs> and important from an accessibility perspective yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, true. But I feel like the conversations are moving on now to like, well, just because we can do it, should we? Right. And I think that's that's where we're we're landing now in being more aware of of that responsibility that we have. Right. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, at the beginning, we mentioned uh, your involvement in the women in tech scene um, in Nottingham. You want to tell me a little bit about what you've been doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, last night was actually uh, one of our events. We do a monthly meetup. And uh, it was an event that was started by a woman called Jess. She began it in April 2016. And 
uh, I joined a few months later because it's really hard to run an event by yourself. Mm. I I stepped in um, because I had done a TEDx event uh, in the same year and had just started speaking at different events. So I felt that I was quite well placed to to come in and, and help with that. Um, and we ran that for a little while together and then she wanted to focus more on, uh, some changes in her career. So she stepped away and, uh, a couple of other event organizers that we were friends with stepped in and, uh, we rebranded and, and came under the Tech Nottingham umbrella, which mm. was a thriving community at Nottingham as it was anyway. Uh, but yeah, we've, uh, we've seen it grow and grow and grow which is amazing. So our event last night, we had 65 attendees, which is the biggest that we've had. And we make sure that we're as inclusive as possible. So uh, when the event began, it was uh, it, it was quite hard to pitch. We're like, is it only for women? Like, or should it be open? So, uh, but we decided to go open and we have quite a lot of male attendees who come and support us which for us is ideal and what we want. Uh, we don't want to be a women's only event because we're already preaching to the choir as it was, <laughs> as it were with that. So yeah, we make it open and um, have some amazing regular attendees who come time and time again, but also we have started to see a lot of new faces, which is fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, that is really fantastic. Um, uh, and I think I, I saw something about uh, trying to help uh, women in technology feel more empowered to do the kind of public speaking that you've been doing, that I, uh, and and to and to develop those opportunities um, because that can always feel e- it's intimidating for anybody to get up on a stage to do it, but even more so in a very traditionally male-dominated environments. It is, it is, and um, yeah, we've we've had a little bit of a theme. So we had Jess come yesterday to uh, to do a talk on on getting into speaking. And there are various events that are happening. Uh, there's uh, one which one of our attendees is helping organize, which is a national uh, CPD, uh, CFP day to get people within uh, less of the privileged mm-hmm. positions to have a go at looking at speaking. Mm-hmm. And like you say, it is, it's a really daunting thing. And uh jess's advice was that you have to or not that you have to but little acts of rebellion go a long way so ah. saying like actually i'm i am going to step up and i'm going to do this talk here and i'm going to have the confidence to say actually i know about this and i want to share it with people and a lightning talk can lead to a meetup event which can lead to a conference absolutely which can lead to a podcast um, as we're chatting. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's great. That sounds, uh, I will I'll put links to all of this in the show notes so people can find out a little, a little bit more about what you've been doing. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, uh, and spending some time helping us understand a little more about inclusion and, and, uh, and privilege. Uh, let's see. People can find out more at your website, helen.digital. That's a pretty yes. cool URL, helen.digital. You. <laughs> uh, and your little heli on Twitter. I nice. am. Yeah. All right, great. Uh, Helen, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's another episode of Presentable. 
Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.